and a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down, thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Almighty God, bless um, not only the re reading of your word, but also the proclamation of it, in order that you might be glorified 
in order that Your people might be built up in order that our prayers might ascend fervently for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering untold evils at the hands of men that are motivated by Satan himself. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. In the summer of 1944, Germany dominated Europe. The Allied armies had gained a toehold in Italy. little geography pun there. But the, Italy, but the Allies could not break through Germany's defenses in the mountains of northern Italy. And all the other Allied uh, armies were crowded into England waiting to invade Fortress Europe. Hitler knew this and he had prepared his defenses in order to drive the Allies back into the sea when they attempted to invade. On June 6, 1944, a Sunday morning, the Allies caught the Germans off guard and invaded ahead of an incoming weather front. In spite of the Allies' initial advantage, the Germans nearly pushed the Allies back into the sea at Omaha Beach. The Germans knew that if the Allies gained a toehold in Western Europe that could be easily resupplied by England, they knew that the Allies would eventually win the war. And so they fought furiously to drive the Americans off the beach. The Allies, as you know from history, gained the toehold that they needed, but that was all that they could get at first. The Germans knew the the Normandy countryside well, and they knew that there were these great hedges called the Bocage. These hedges were like uh, fences around the the different uh, fields uh, that the farmers would would, um, plant their crops. And these hedges had been growing literally for centuries. And they were so big and so thick that the Allies could not even drive a tank through the Bocage. And so the Germans would set up a sneak attack in, in every, along every lane, every road in the Bocage. And uh, the Allies could not break out of Normandy for several weeks. And the Allied invasion was threatened because sooner or later Hitler was going to bring his tanks down from, um, from the north and bring them to bear upon the Allies who were stuck there. Uh, just just off the beaches. But the Allies inserted General Patton into Europe. He was given command of a third army. He broke out, and the Allies nearly encircled the German army. But a bulk of the Germans escaped in what uh, has come to be known as the Falaise Gap. With the Allies poised to win the war, the Germans were again driven to desperation. And so they started a winter battle, and it was just before Christmas. It was one of the most harsh winters that Northern Europe had ever seen. And they broke through the Allied lines, 
And what their goal was to capture the port of the seaport of Antwerp, but because the 101st Airborne was able to hold out in the city of Bastogne and hold out against all odds, the Allies won what came to be known as the Battle of the Bulge. In that two-month battle, there were over 185,000 casualties. I'm giving this condensed history of the Allies' war in Europe because it mirrors the message of, Re of Revelation chapter 12. The moments the Allies gained the toehold in Normandy on D-Day, it was a certainty that the Allies would celebrate on VE Day. Of course, VE Day is Victory in Europe Day. Both the Germans and the Allies knew this, but instead of giving up, the Germans fought harder. They fought more desperately and furiously. As a result, the Allies had to fight more courageously. And many, many, many thousands of Allied soldiers lost, lost their lives fighting for a victory that everyone knew to be certain. The moment Jesus Christ cried out on the cross, It is finished! And he gave up his spirit and died on the cross. Satan's defeat was certain. Christ, there on the cross, absorbed in his body not only the wrath of God for our sins, and that blow from God was an infinite, it was, it was a blow of infinite intensity. But Christ also suffered the greatest blow that Satan had to give. Now the blow that Satan gave to Christ was very small compared to the blow that God the Father gave to Christ because of our sins. Um, but it was a blow nonetheless. Genesis chapter 3 likens this blow that Satan gave to, to Christ as a, as a snake nipping at Christ's heel. At that very moment that Christ died, Satan did not yet know it, but his defeat was certain. When Christ died on the cross, what ended up happening was Christ stomped on the head of Satan and crushed his head, according to Genesis chapter 3. So look with me at our passage. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to do something that goes against every fiber of my being. I'm going to do great injustice to Revelation 12. Revelation 12 is a message that is written with bold descriptive images in order to capture the reader's uh, imagination. But what I'm going to do is take a sledgehammer to Revelation chapter 12 and beat it into a very linear, conventional statement. A whole bunch of, 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 of short statements so that we can understand the passage. What I'd love to do is just stop and take a few weeks to look at every image that the Apostle John has drawn for us here in this passage. But I'm not going to do that. Um, we're just going to to see what it means and keep moving. So look, for instance, at verses 3 through 5. 
and the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. What a picture! Oh, in verse 5, she gave birth to the male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God, to His throne. What does this mean? Well, this simply means that Satan tried to destroy Christ by using the powerful nations of the earth, namely Rome, in order to crucify, um, in order to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, when it says that that uh, her child, the woman's child, was caught up to God and to His throne, this simply means that Christ was resurrected from the grave and ascended into heaven. Now, because Satan could do no more uh, to harm physic, uh, harm Christ physically, then with rage he turned his attention to the church, which is represented by the woman. Verse 6 uses the imagery of how God saved Elijah from Ahab in order to say that God protected the church from the full fury of Satan's wrath. So verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, where she has a place prepared for her, a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. And so I'm just simply saying without examining the imagery in full, that this means that God protected the church from the full fury of Satan's wrath for a time. Verses 7 through 12, this is a very confusing passage, but it's confusing until you understand how John is communicating. He's not giving us a storyline like we tend to think. We assume that the, the next events happened in the time uh, after the previous events. In other words, this is an event that happened after Christ's resurrection and, and everything like that. But that's not what John is doing. What he's doing is he is describing the effects of the death and resurrection of Christ from a different angle. In fact, in verse 7, I'm inclined to think that the archangel Michael is really a symbolic picture of Christ. I don't know. I'm unwilling to say that for sure. Again, this passage is a very imagination-capturing description of the total defeat of Satan. Satan was defeated when Christ died on the cross and when Christ rose from the grave. And then when Christ ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God to be our intercessor, Satan lost all power to accuse believers. Um, lost all power to accuse them of having a, a guilty standing before God. Because see, on the cross, Christ took all of our sins upon Himself. All of our past sins all of our present sins, even all of our future sins. And those included all of our worst sins. He took that sin upon Himself. He died for all our sins. And He satisfied the full wrath of God that we deserve to suffer. 
Because of Christ, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So who is, who is able to bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there left to condemn? No one. The accuser has been thrown down. The accuser has been defeated. Because Christ took our sins in His body on the cross and paid for them. Christ died for us. He was raised for us. He is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And therefore nothing under all creation, not even persecution, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the meaning of verse 10. So look with me at verse 10. John says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. What a beautiful, what a comforting truth. Now the effect is that Satan has been defeated and he knows it. And so he is enraged. Look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, because the accuser has been thrown down. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. In other words, he knows that his defeat has happened. But just like the Germans, this caused him to fight even that much more furiously. Since he cannot harm Christ, he takes out all his vengeance that he can, that God allows him to take out. He takes out on Christ's followers. And although the church was protected by, for a time, verse 6, she was um, sent off to the wilderness... In verse 12, it appears that God is removing some of His protection and allowing the church to face some of the wrath of Satan. But look closely at verse 11. Look at it with me while I read it. Verse 11 says, And they, talking about the followers of Christ, and they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Satan is trying his best to destroy the church. He's trying to destroy Christians. But here it says, it says in verse 11 that the Christians have already conquered him. Past tense. How have they conquered him? 
full, it says here, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We know what the blood of the Lamb is. It represents our justification. It represents our adoption as God's children. The blood of Christ was spilled for our sins. The blood of Christ covers over our sins so that we have a righteous standing before God. So that we there's nothing that hinders us from being God's children. So we've conquered Him. It says we've conquered Him by the blood of the One who really conquered Him, Jesus Christ. But what is this word of their testimony? How did they conquer Satan by the word of their testimony? Well, what he's talking about here is their martyrdom. Because it goes on in verse 11 to say, For they love not their lives even unto death. In other words... They conquered Satan by being willing to die for their testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. We live soft lives here in America. We couldn't even bear to live as kings 2,000 years ago. You know, having to, to, to forego indoor plumbing, that would do most of us in right away. Uh, my girls couldn't even bear to forego their foo-foo coffee. Um, we, we live soft lives here in America. But I guarantee you, and I back it up with the authority of the Word of God, if any of us were threatened with a violent death because of our faith in Christ, all of us who truly love and trust in Jesus Christ would gladly, if not easily, yet gladly lay down our lives for Him. That's the mark of a true Christian. Everybody who loves and trusts the Lord Jesus Christ is faced with death or turning away from Christ by God's Spirit working in them will choose to be martyred. So what is the genuineness of your testimony? What is the genuineness of your faith? Verses 13 through 17 were, re- were written to reassure that the persecuted Christians that Satan would never win. If you boil these verses down, that's essentially what it's saying. Uh, a very graphic, imagination-captivating cap- way of saying, some of you are going to lose your lives, but Satan will never overcome the church. Although... Satan pursues the church like a roaring lion prowling around for whom he may devour, to quote uh, 1 Peter. He cannot win because God is for the church. And if God is for you, who can be against you? So verses 14 through 16 simply say that God will protect the church, but it says it in a very colorful way. Verses 14 through 16, But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. And so the idea here is Satan is vomiting a river of persecution against the church to sweep her away. Verse 16, But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. 
It's election season. Tuesday is uh, election day. You know, everything that's bad in the world is being magnified. It's being put in a commercial. It's being uh, recorded for a robocall. And then it's being... And then... Um, one politician is blaming the other politician for all those bad things that are happening. We're being, um, we're being led to believe that no matter who wins the governor's, uh, the race for, for the Florida governor, that our next governor is going to be so bad that Florida will cease to function as a state before the next governor's term is over. You've seen the commercials, you've had the robocalls, you've read the headlines. Headline after headline after headline says that the world is spinning out of control. But verses 14 through 16 says that no matter how bad the world gets, no matter how much the world is spinning out of control, no matter how severe the persecution of Christians, the church will remain because God is for her. He will ultimately protect the church in spite of whatever persecution. And so whatever happens in our country, or whatever happens in the world over the next two years, or over the next ten years, the church will remain. And God will be faithful to His people. But we should also expect that Satan's warfare against the church will also remain. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Wait a minute, I thought he was already making war on the, the offspring of the woman, but who are the rest of her offspring? It goes on to say, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So who is the rest of the woman's offspring? Well, they're identified as people who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, but that still doesn't uh, identify for us specifically or exactly who these other offspring of the woman are. If you want to know who they are, look to your right, look to your left, and you'll see them. The rest of the woman's offspring are Gentile Christians. It's us. And so, Satan's warfare continues against us to this day. We live in a land that is particularly blessed, that we have the rule of law, that we have uh, constitutionally uh, protected freedom uh, to worship. But Satan's um, warfare continues against us and against all Christians to this day. We're not experiencing this warfare as explicitly as our brothers and sisters around the world, but it is here. Satan's warfare against us is a bit different in his strategy against us than it is against others. His strategy against us is a strategy of infiltration rather than open attack. He attacks us with affluence. He attacks us with secularism so that we are sluggish and we are lazy in the way that we live our lives for Christ. But around the world, he's leading a frontal attack 
using um, the Islamic religion, using communistic ideology, and uh, using other ideologies to attack uh, Christians. How are we to combat this persecution? Revelation 12 says nothing about Christians taking up arms against the unjust and cruel treatment of Christians. Uh, it says nothing about how Christians are defending themselves. It only talks about how God defends and protects the church. And I think this is instructive for us. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. The Apostle Paul says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our fight, ultimately, is not against unbelieving Christians. They are our enemies, no doubt. But we are called by Jesus Himself in Matthew chapter 5 to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. It is clear that the nations of the earth refuse to go out, or to go out of their way to stand up for the persecuted church. As maddening as that is, our hope is not in any earthly power. There is no earthly power that can protect Christians by their military might. And even believers who die, this world is not their home. They have a new Jerusalem, a heavenly home with Christ. And so our hope is greater than any human hope. And our weapons are greater than any human military arms. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We have three weapons that God has given us uh, that have divine power to destroy strongholds. First of all, we have the proclamation of the gospel. Secondly, oh, oh, the, the proclamation of the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Romans 1, um, 16 and 17 tells us. Secondly, we have our willingness to die for our testimony for Christ. Verse 11. We already looked at that. The church has long had this saying that the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. When a Christian is willing to die for their faith and also love, forgive, and pray for those who are persecuting them, that is a powerful sermon. You say, how can it be the word of their testimony if they're dying? Well, their death, their martyrdom, and the way that they die, and the way that they treat their enemies is a sermon in and of itself. And that's why the Apostle John says, it is by the word of their testimony. So the second um, weapon we have is our willingness to die for Christ. Our third weapon is the weapon of prayer. Believers in those countries that are being persecuted are using all three of these weapons. And guess what? The church is growing more rapidly in these countries than here in America. Guess which country is experiencing the greatest growth of new Christians. 
Think of a country. Think. Let your imagination run wild. Think of a country. You got it? Guess which country? According to the voice of the martyrs and Operation World, the evangelical church in Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. Isn't that an amazing thing? You know, I'm hearing reports from my own friends and from our denominational leaders in the PCA that their entire Muslim mosque, they're turning to Christ. They're not saying that very publicly because then that just invites more persecution and a more strict uh, crackdown. But all across the Middle East, there are people turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of the severe persecution and even loss of life. Isn't that just stunning? Iranian Christians are preaching Christ. They're doing so in secret, of course. They are also laying down their lives for for their testimony in Christ, and then they are praying for their persecutors. We're not able to preach to Iranians this morning. We're not able to lay down our lives for our testimony. But we are able to join them in praying this morning. If you have your bulletins, inside your bulletin, you'll see a little insert with a lady praying. And the reason we've included this in your bulletin is we want you to commit to praying for the persecuted church. Turn that insert over. You're going to see ten ways to pray for the persecuted church. To conclude this sermon, I want you to choose just one of those ten ways right now. Whichever one your eyes fall on, don't everybody pray for the first one. Uh, Don't everybody neglect the first (laughs) request either. But I want us to give us a few moments to silently pray just one of those requests. And then I'll close this in a few moments by saying, Amen, may God hear us. Let's pray. God hear us. Closing hymn, number 108, Whate'er my God ordains is right, would you please rise?